welcome to this morning's session. I'm Dr. Ken Paris, um, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to thank you for joining us for today's educational activity on primary immunodeficiency in pediatric care, specifically when it's more than just an infection. This activity this morning is supported by an educational grant from Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA, Incorporated. CME Outfitters is a joint accreditation provider and as such develops and certifies continuing educational activities for the team and by the team, including our program today. So again, I'm Kenneth Paris. I am a professor of clinical pediatrics at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I am the academic division head and clinical service line chief at Children's Hospital New Orleans. I've been the program director for our fellowship for the past 15 years, and that is a, a part of my job that I am particularly proud of and has given me a great deal of satisfaction throughout the years. Um, I'm also pleased to introduce our uh, faculty today, um, and each of them will have a, a few minutes to describe what they do and their background. I'm Kristen Eplin. I'm a nurse practitioner with Infectious Disease Associates in Minneapolis. I have 25 years of experience dealing with immunoglobulin and primary immunodeficiency diseases in both pediatrics and adult. I started as an uh, RN in home infusion nursing uh, and then later bone marrow transplant, uh, primary immunodeficiency, outpatient care, and now I am uh, doing that and inpatient care as well. Hello, I'm Hei Chong. Uh, I am the Division Director of Allergy Immunology, um, as well as the Medical Director of the Inborn Errors of Immunity Clinic at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Thanks, guys. Um, so before we get started with the program, I want to review what the learning objectives are going to be. Um, so after completing the activity, either here live in person or at home virtually, I want everyone to be able to, one, assess the signs and symptoms of PI in pediatric patients, two, implement strategies for timely diagnosis of primary immunodeficiency, and three, incorporate evidence-based treatments for patients with PI. And so let's get started. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty of today's uh, discussion, we're going to talk a little bit about primary immunodeficiency and a background of where we um, are today. So primary immunodeficiency is really a group of uh, genetic disorders that affects the development and function of the immune system. Over the past you know, 30 years, there have been great strides in understanding the, the genetic basis of these diseases. Um, but despite being very heterogeneous, they all have a uniform feature, and that is they make a particular patient vulnerable to either frequent severe or unusual infections. And unfortunately, because patients with PI don't really look any different than a normal patient that's walking through a pediatric practice with infection, there is often a delayed diagnosis. And we know over the years that that probably also impacts patients from an underserved community a little bit more than the general population. We've also struggled um, sort of uh, staying consistent with how we describe um, these diseases. Currently, many patients or many uh, physicians will use the, the moniker PI 
um, to describe primary immunodeficiency patients. But over the years, we've also used PID. Sometimes you'll see the abbreviation PIDD to mean a patient with primary immunodeficiency. And more recently, because we recognize that these disorders also can affect um, autoimmunity and other inflammatory disorders, we've begun using the term uh, inborn errors of immunity, or IEI, as the abbreviation um, in more recent publications. So one problem with uh, primary immunodeficiency is um, over the years, we've really done a poor job in, in teaching it because we put up a slide with lots of uh, pathways and um, uh, very, complex, uh, very complex slides. Um, here we're going to talk a little bit about um, how uh, there's been a, a major increase in the discovery of inborn errors of immunity, what the prevalence of those disorders are, and then the typical types of deficiencies that we see. And historically, people have thought of primary immunodeficiency as a very rare disease, and that's probably true, right? So if we look at severe combined immune deficiency, that occurs at a rate of approximately 1 in 65,000. And we know that now from the data that was obtained after the implementation of newborn skid screening, we were, where we were actually able to determine what the prevalence was based upon the birth rate in various states. Um, other diseases, like IgA deficiency, might actually occur at a much more frequent uh, uh, rate. For example, one in 600. And if you think about all the attendees at the meeting today, that means that in the group of physicians here, there's probably a significant number of people who have IgA deficiency, whether they know it or not, right? Many patients with IgA deficiency are asymptomatic and don't come to medical attention until they develop gluten sensitivity, some recurrent infections, um, or GI problems. Across the world, most immunology practices have a wide variety of patients that they see, but overwhelmingly those patients are affected by B-cell disorders, which make them susceptible to recurrent infections with encapsulated bacteria that are amenable to treatment with either oral or IV antibiotics or immunoglobulin replacement. Um, we also see the other types of rare diseases like phagocyte disorders or chronic granulomatous disease, complement disorders, and then disorders that affect the T cell, making patients susceptible to unusual or um, opportunistic infections. When I look at the left side of the screen, um, and you see the cumulative discovery of the mutations that cause inborn errors of immunity, it makes me think of, uh, of my career, right? So when I was a medical student in uh, 96, I'll date myself a little bit, there were probably less than 100 mutations identified that would lead to a disorder of immunity. As a fellow in 2006, that number jumped to approximately 150, and we were really unable to send genetic testing at that time to make a diagnosis. We only relied on basic immune function testing. In the last 10 years, however, there's been a huge discovery in the number of mutations that impact the immune system, and we now can make a diagnosis very quickly with panels of genes 
And in fact, the most recent uh, panel that's released by a major um, genetic testing company can test for over 475 individual mutations on a single oral or buccal swab or blood sample. So we've made some huge strides in the ability to make an accurate diagnosis. And that's really important also for putting a patient on a uh, well-defined or tailored uh, treatment plan. So before we go forward, we're going to do a quick audience response question. According to the Jeffrey Modell Foundation guidance, which of the following is a warning sign for PI in pediatric patients? A, greater than or equal to four new ear infections in one year. B, greater than two new ear infections in one year. Three, three weeks of antibiotics with little effect. D, one sinus infection within 12 months. Or E, you're not sure. Don't select that one. <laughs> Good. So the answer is A. So, hey, or Kristen, if you have any uh, comments about some of these other um, choices and why you might not have, have chosen that, for example, Kristen, the, the sinus infection or one sinus infection within 12 months. I mean, I think that that is a, a pretty typical primary care presentation, right? Yeah. Uh, and as an allergist immunologist, I'm sure you see sinus infection being a presenting concern in the vast majority of your patients. Exactly. So sometimes it's really difficult to make that decision of when to consider um, primary immunodeficiency because the infections that they get are not that much different than, you know, normal patients with normal immunity. It's more about the frequency or severity. Um, and I think the challenge in primary care, and especially in pediatrics, is to document that there has actually been clearance of infection in between. So for clearly for new ear infections is a different problem than a patient with serosotitis who has the same infection that just doesn't go away. Exactly. Okay, let's focus now on learning objective number one, assessing the signs and symptoms of primary immunodeficiency. Okay. So, as I mentioned, we've done a, a um, as physicians, we've over the years, probably done a pretty poor job at um, making timely diagnoses of patients with primary immunodeficiency. And one of the patient advocacy groups or organizations in the United States, the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, recognized that. And what they did is put together a list of um, suggestions of when to think about primary immunodeficiency in either clinical practice or when a family or a a patient might want to think about asking their physician to consider primary immunodeficiency um, as a diagnosis. And so they were pretty specific about frequency of infection and types of infection um, in, in their list of, of guidelines. And they have one specifically for adults and another one for, for pediatric patients. The Immune Deficiency Foundation had a different, uh, or has a different outlook on this, um, but with the same ultimate goal in regards to making the diagnosis in a timely fashion. Um, they're a little less granular and focus more upon um, considering primary immunodeficiency in patients who have unusual recurrent or persistent infections and reach out really to, to families and patients 
um, in order to achieve the goal of a timely diagnosis. Like other diseases that pediatricians care for, um, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities definitely impact the diagnosis of primary immunodeficiency. Um, but admittedly, there are very few patients which specifically address these disparities in the diagnosis or management of these diseases. Um, recently, though, a report by the Quad AI Committee, which is our, one of our national organizations, um, published some data which shows that patients with private insurance um, in administrative databases actually had the highest rates of PI diagnoses. White patients were greater than two times more likely to be diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency versus black or Hispanic patients. And there was a significant underrepresentation among racial and ethnic underserved communities in clinical trials. And that is a focus for a lot of academic centers right now to reach out to underserved communities to participate in very important clinical trials to discover new treatments um, and diagnostic modalities for these diseases. Um, and it's really important for us as pediatricians to assess the social determinants of health, which is my next slide, in order to decide upon um, either optimal or specific tailored care for patients. So the social determinants of health definitely affect both the diagnosis and the management of patients with PI. And I think it starts probably with race and ethnicity um, and our own individual conscious or unconscious bias and discrimination of patients. Um, financial resources of patients in underserved communities can also impact the ability to come to a physician for a timely diagnosis. The actual physical location of somebody where they live clearly can impact whether they can actually get to a physician's office for, for care. Or, if they don't or have can a, we get nursing to them? That's correct. Once care. you've made the diagnosis, if you can get a nurse to, the, to that location in order to provide home infusions. Um, the social network of a patient can also impact the social determinants um, or their diagnosis, right? Uh, whether they have access to virtual care with computers and internet access. If you don't have those things, you may not be able to connect with your physician, mm -hmm. ask them questions, and you know, get timely follow-up. Um, so all these things definitely impact diagnosis and management. Before we move on to the next question, or the next section, we're gonna do one more audience response question. On average, how long does it take for PI to be properly diagnosed? Is it five years, 10 years, 15, 20, or you're not sure? So 15 years is the correct answer, which is actually surprising. So most physicians would assume that uh, the diagnosis would occur much sooner than 15, but actually based on some Immune Deficiency Foundation surveys, patients report that their journey between symptom onset and accurate diagnosis averages about 15 years. Um, unfortunately, we haven't really been able to move that needle very much um, over the past probably 20 to 25 years, and that's why 
sessions like this are so important in order to um, explain the background of these diseases and teach people what to look for in their practices. When I first started in immune deficiency care, uh, I would present uh, data from an IDF survey. You can go ahead and go to my, sure. go to my slide. Um, I would present data from an IDF survey that documented that it was uh, on average seven years to diagnosis. Uh, and I, I said, you know, as we move forward, uh, we will do better. And uh, then approximately five years later, IDF did another survey. And in 2013, the IDF documented that it was actually more like 15 years until a, a, a patient was diagnosed from first presentation of symptoms to actual uh, diagnosis. So I want to talk about the long road to diagnosis today, and I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to expedite diagnosis and how we can, uh, you know, increase our radar uh, for which of these patients need to be screened. And then I want to talk a little bit about screening. So um, like Dr. Paris said, uh, on average, it's 15 years to diagnosis from pre first presentation of symptoms. Uh, more than 50% of people who receive a primary immunodeficiency diagnosis are diagnosed over age 30. Um, this is an inborn error of immunity in most cases. So th this is a 30-year delay in diagnosis, in my opinion. So the, the most impactful thing that the IDF survey has revealed to us is that, yeah, chronic infections and recurrent infection is a really important marker of screen, who needs to be screened. But additionally, sometimes it's autoimmune disease. In fact, 25% of cases, it's autoimmune disease that is the presenting factor, uh, the first symptom. Um, and when patients are delayed in their diagnosis, the quality of life measures fall off dramatically. So these are patients who have increased days in the hospital, increased days missed from work or school. And so in those particular cases, um, the, the quality of life is impaired by the time we even get to a diagnosis. Um, so I want to start this off with an introduction to a brief story of, of Ilana. Um, Ilana is a patient advocate uh, and also an author on surviving and thriving with chronic disease. Um, and her story uh, is pretty typical for all of us. I mean, we see these patients who are waiting for their diagnoses, who are impacted by a chronic health condition without a name. Um, so I, I want to just play a, a short snippet of a longer interview with her. Uh, so can we roll the footage of Ilana right now? So my story starts like this. I was born sick, uh, constantly dealing with infections, mostly lung, bronchitis, mucosal, sinus strep, and viruses. Uh, and they would not improve, not without aggressive intervention and oftentimes without hospitalizations. I was fortunate in that I had a mother who was a great advocate for me, but who endured many instances of medical gaslighting where she was told she was being overprotective and paranoid and that some children were just sickly children. Before uh, the age of 18, with great insurance and access to a university hospital just one hour from my home in South Florida, I would see uh, pediatricians, pulmonologists, allergists, and have many hospitalists who would look over my care and assess me as a patient, but none that would make the diagnosis, and I slipped through the cracks. When I was in high school, uh, I was becoming 
extremely burnt out from nonstop untreated infections. I had mono for a year where I was only able to stay awake for a few hours each day, and I almost failed out of high school because of truancy laws. But because I had a parent who advocated for me in the exam room, I was able to advocate for myself with the school board. And I was able to get by and get an education with help that most students wouldn't know how to access or how to ask for. And I would begin to develop allergies or simply become immune to most antibiotics from overuse. And by the time I turned 18, I realized I was not going to be able to leave home and go away to college. So I went to a local community college and struggled to do simple things like climb a staircase or carry my books to class because my body was so weak and so run down. And I would nap in my car between classes. Uh, and if I didn't have a car, you know, I wouldn't have been able to get back and forth to school quickly enough to get the rest that I needed. And I probably would have had to drop out. And I was young and I was still on my parents' insurance and I was working part-time jobs remotely from my bed. And I had the support system to be able to continue looking for help. Uh, I started to see every specialist I could get into, every single one. And we ran so many tests and I had so many doctors who just like couldn't wrap their heads around what it was that I was experiencing. And I started to feel like I was crazy. Uh, I got to a point where I did not want to keep seeking answers, but I was also too sick to live like this. So one day, my stepfather went to synagogue and asked his congregation to pray for me out loud. And after he did that, one of the men in his temple introduced himself as an infectious disease doctor. Uh, and he told him uh, to bring me to his office and that he would try to figure me out. And my parents dragged me to that appointment. I mean, dragged. Uh, I was so scared to have another doctor gaslight me and make me feel silly and paranoid for being so sick. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, he took my history for over an hour. He looked through all the blood tests and scans that had already been performed. He did his own exam. Uh, and he said, you know, I, I think I know what's wrong with, with you. And I didn't want to get my hopes up because I'd heard that before. Um, but this time just seemed different. And not long after that, we went home and we waited for results. And he called and he said, hey, uh, you have this disease. Uh, you have something called hypogammaglobulin anemia and your levels are critically low uh, and you need to go to the hospital right now and start IVIG. And I honestly never been more relieved or at peace in my life than in that moment during that phone call uh, knowing I wasn't crazy, uh, knowing that all the pushing and money and quality of life lost was finally coming to an end. Um, it was more than I could have ever hoped for. So a couple of things come to mind when I watch that. And first thing that comes to mind is I hope that no patient leaves my office and says they were medically gaslighted by me. I mean, that, that is an absolute nightmare for a provider to hear. Um, but I often talk to my patients when I'm making a diagnosis or have made a diagnosis that it's a bit of a good news, bad news scenario, right? The good news is we know what's wrong with you. And the bad news is you have a formal diagnosis of an immune deficiency. So um, I, I think that her story plays into that really nicely. And, and, and I want to talk about the diagnostic process in a way that's manageable, uh, kind of palatable to a primary care provider who has a limited amount of time to a patient who's presenting with those 10 warning signs. Um, because there are lots of really intricate testings. Like on the right side of this slide, 
Um, there are a lot of tests in there that you would have to look up in your compendium in order for you to order. Um, some of them even need prior authorization just to order them, but that's not always necessary to lead the patient down the path towards diagnosis. I am going to say that good old-fashioned history taking is a very important part of diagnosis, understanding the history of this patient's presenting complaint. Uh, what kinds of infections, right? Uh, how frequent are they? Are they clearing up in between? What are the treatments that they're receiving? I've had so many examples, and I know you two have as well, where you have a patient, uh, uh, let's say a 10-month-old, who comes into clinic with a recurrent ear infection, and the only antibiotic that child has seen is amoxicillin, right? So is this clearly four different infections in a year? Or is this, uh, like I said before, a serositis that has just been undertreated? So those are important steps in history taking. And then, of course, physical examination. Uh, and I, I think uh, Dr. Chong's going to talk about this a little bit later, uh, but a physical exam, you know, if you have a 13-month-old child with a large spleen and you didn't put your hands on that patient, you are going to miss something. Uh, so a physical exam is still important in the diagnosis. Reviewing growth parameters in children is a good marker. And in adults, and I know we're not talking about adults, but in adults, uh, unintentional weight loss is also a really good marker to be on the lookout for. And then starting out simple, do a CBC with differential. And I always go back to this case. This was, this was probably um, eight or nine years ago before the state of Minnesota uh, began TREC analysis for our newborns. I had a patient admitted to the Children's Hospital uh, as a newborn who was actually admitted because of congenital hypothyroidism. So the newborn screen had picked up congenital hypothyroidism. And this patient was admitted for failure to thrive. What I noticed was that this patient had had three CBCs drawn, and on all three CBCs had a lymphocyte count of 100. And nobody had paid attention to that. So simply looking at some of the basic markers can be warning signs. And this child ended up having Omen syndrome, having a SCID, a severe combined immune deficiency syndrome. Uh, and underwent bone marrow transplant eventually. But the speed of diagnosis was delayed because this child, before he even went to transplant, was already four months old. So, so just simply looking at some of the simple markers is, is something from a primary care pediatrics office that can easily be done. So before you move on, Princeton, I have one question here from uh, the virtual space. So do we need radiographic or microbiologic documentation of infections in order to establish the diagnosis of PI? Or would abnormal laboratory values or other tests make that diagnosis um, and give you the ability to treat a patient maybe with immunoglobulin replacement or some other form of tailored therapy um, specific to their disorder? I think that's a, that's a question that we hope to answer today, right? I mean, we're starting from the beginning. Get, get a good history under your belt. Um, do you need microbiology to diagnose an ear infection? Do you need microbiology to diagnose a, a pneumonia? Or, a, you know, so, so starting with the suspicion leads us down the road to the four stages of testing. So start with the suspicion and then go down the road. The, the first Past testing can be done very easily, which is just like I said, CBC and differential. Quantitative immunoglobulin levels, I'm going to talk about those in a minute. They're cheap. They're cheap. 
Yeah. And I want to also add a little bit about chest x-rays, right? We, we don't need them. And there are some forms of immune deficiency where they are unable to handle radiation and they have DNA radiosensitivity, right? And I've seen patients that I've diagnosed ultimately with ataxia telangiectasia who had had six, seven, eight, nine chest x-rays in a row. Or CT scans. Or, bad, yeah. or CT or scans. CT or, scans. Yes. yes. And so um, you, you don't need that. That's a great question for whoever asked. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I don't expect you to go through all four stages of testing on this slide. That's not the purpose of this. I want to go through some of the simple things that can be done on your first pass. Uh, so this next slide, I don't want you to miss family history. This is a, this is a, a drawing of a family history that's pretty typical for an X-linked disease. And in immune deficiency and inborn errors of immunity, X-linked diseases are prevalent. And so you can see here the affected and the carrier status of this family. Um, don't miss a family history. So a family history of immune deficiency is important. A family history of uh, early infant demise is a, right, a red flag for us. And so if, if we don't ask the questions, you're not often going to get the answer because I'll ask sometimes a, a new skid family, and I'll say, anybody in your family ever lost an infant early? And I get so many positive answers. Like my, my sister lost a baby to SIDS at one month old, two months old, or, you know? Yeah, there's two things I always ask for our fellows that are working or residents. I ask about uh, the sex of the, um, the patient, because if it's a boy, I tend to have a higher or a heightened suspicion that maybe there's a PI because of the prevalence of X-linked diseases. Um, and then I also ask about whether they, the patient's family, if there are maternal uncles that are living, yeah. right? Or if they've ever had um, uh, the death of a, a young boy in their family mm -hmm. for that same disease. I think another question I ask too, and it's, it can be very awkward. So you say, you know, I ask this of everyone, but is there any possibility that the two of you are related? Yeah. Um, and that really raises your suspicion. And because of our patient population, um, we do, I've seen many cases where the patients are cousins or related in, in some way. So I have a question here from the audience. So in infants with a family history of uh, primary immunodeficiency disease, do you see them presenting with less or fewer recurrent infections, or do you feel like it's the same? Um, I would hope that we're seeing less frequent infections and that we're picking it up early, right? There's, but it's not always yeah. the case. The XLA data that I think uh, Dr. Conley published a while ago uh, showed that in XLA, the diagnosis, I think, was around six, and even with a known family history, they've, the diagnosis went down to three, not at birth, so, but so just still to, three years just old. Just to drill that down, XLA is X-linked agamma globulinemia. So it's an X-linked uh, deficiency of all immunoglobulins. Uh, and it's easy to diagnose if, if you're paying attention to the history. And, and it's important, so if you have XLA adults in your population, it's, it's important to educate them that their, their daughters could be carriers. Mm -hmm. So, so again, fam, don't, don't blow family history off, is I guess yeah. the lesson of this slide. My favorite family history story is someone came and uh, the, the boy had um, splenomegaly. And I was like, oh, so you, you did have a big spleen. And the dad goes, so everybody has a big spleen. I have a big spleen. My brother has a big spleen. My dad has a big spleen. What's the big deal about big spleens? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. The XLPs. <laughs> um, 
I mentioned this earlier, 25% of patients who present uh, with a primary immunodeficiency disease are presenting with autoimmunity. So this is another important marker. So this is where we get beyond infection. So it's not just infection. That should be raising our hackles to this diagnosis. Um, and exclusively focusing on infection as an inborn error of immunity uh, will miss those patients. The most common autoimmune conditions that we're seeing in initial presentation are cytopenias, uh, specifically ITP, uh, but also hemolytic anemias or, or even the collection, which we call Evans syndrome. Uh, so if you have these young children in your practice and you have not screened them for a primary immunodeficiency disease, you're going to miss them. Uh, and in fact, I have uh, some uh, later adolescents who are coming to me from hematology who are stubborn. Their, their, their cytopenias are stubborn. And they've already typically been treated with immunosuppression, high-dose steroids, maybe an anti-B cell therapy like rituximab. And by the time I'm getting them for screening for immune deficiency, um, I am not getting an immune system that's untainted. So they're already immune, secondarily immune suppressed. Uh, so making the diagnosis becomes really difficult. So if you are those treaters, getting baseline immunoglobulin data on a child who presents with a cytopenia is cheap. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Or, okay. One comment on that. Yeah. You mentioned um, having a patient who has been treated with immunosuppression and how that makes it difficult to make the diagnosis. And there's a question from the audience that probably ties into that. So when should genetic testing be ordered to look for an underlying molecular defect? Yeah, uh, sooner in this day and age than later. Absolutely. Like you mentioned earlier, uh, we used to not be able to order any genetics, or if we did, it was like a $1,500 out-of-pocket expense for the family, yeah. and we could do a few genes. And now we can do it in many cases for less than 200, less than 200 bucks, or in some cases, even free, mm -hmm. um, depending on that patient's particular situation, if yeah. you suspect a certain disease. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big lesson here is if your suspicion is high, then pursuing diagnosis through an organized sort of, you know, sort of algorithm of diagnosis um, makes it a, a little bit easier for the provider. Um, and, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, test costs here as we go. I'm going to walk a little bit more specifically through testing, so stick with me here. Um, I also want to bring to light, you, you dangled it a little bit earlier, but organ-specific auto-inflammatory or autoimmune conditions uh, can also be a warning sign of immune deficiency, uh, specifically something like celiac disease. Uh, we often pick up celiac patients because in conjunction with the gliadin and trans, tissue transglutaminase testing, uh, a baseline IgA is done. And when you have an abnormal IgA, those, that testing validity falls off. But if you have a, an abnormal IgA, you should feel compelled to do the rest of the antibodies because it may not just be a selective IgA-deficient patient or IgA-deficient patient. It could be a whole... Uh, sequence of antibody deficiencies. And I want to add one more thing about this too, with recently the very early onset IBD has just exploded. And if you look, there's really nice data that if you look at patients who are diagnosed with IBD under the age of two, a whopping 20% of them will likely have an inborn error of immunity. And the treatments are different. And now you can use 
possibly hematopoietic stem cell transplant to cure IBD in these patients who have an inborn error of immunity. That's huge. Our hospital automatically, anyone who's now diagnosed with IBD under the age of six, those GI docs all refer those patients for workup at, in immunology. So that's, that's a really new field that's exciting. Let's talk a little bit about laboratory analysis. This is kind of, you know, following the stages of testing. Uh, laboratory analysis should start with the lymphocyte. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, missing a patient with lymphopenia at, in infancy uh, can be devastating if you're missing a skid diagnosis. Now, um, we're going to talk about TREC analysis, but right now all 50 states have TREC analysis on the newborn screening on the Guthrie card. Uh, so, so some of that stuff has been taken off of our plate. But when we start with the lymphocyte, um, it, the, the test costs us 20 bucks, right? It costs us 20 bucks to do a differential. Um, and what we're really looking, and you don't have to, you don't have to take notes on this slide, but what we're really doing is we're boiling, boiling down um, the stages of testing through the lymphoid stem cell uh, that gets us to the B cells. Uh, the T cell, the natural killer cell, and beyond now with all of our B cell knowledge, uh, getting down to the, to the level of the memory B cell. So you, you, I'm not asking you to know this slide, but we are going to refer to that in a minute. Here's a little bit about TREC analysis. So uh, T cell receptor excision circles are what we are looking at from the Guthrie card. And screening for skid now is in all 50 states. It's done by a simple drop of blood on a piece of paper. So what they're doing is they're extracting DNA and looking for uh, amplifying copies of the T cell. And so it's an inexpensive assay uh, that's integrated into all of our public health programs now uh, and can identify SCID, or severe combined immune deficiency, that is fatal. This is a T cell, B cell immune deficiency um, that can result in exorbitant healthcare costs in that first year of life, but even more importantly, if it's not diagnosed early, will lead to uh, a poor outcome when it comes to uh, skid treatment. But for the primary care provider, for pediatrics, every abnormal TREC is not skid. This TREC analysis has brought to light many other lymphopenic uh, conditions of infancy, um, like trisomy 21. These, these trisomy 21 babies can be lymphopenic, are often lymphopenic, in fact. There's a, a primary immunodeficiency by the name of DeGeorge syndrome uh, that is diagnosed by the TREC. Not always, but can be picked up, uh, especially if it's a complete DeGeorge. Uh, idiopathic lymphocytopenia uh, and uh, infants who come from mothers who are in immunosuppression, and this is becoming a more common phenomenon. Uh, we have a lot of mothers who are on targeted immunotherapy for their IBD, uh, for their RA, uh, and can safely become pregnant and carry a pregnancy. And, and sometimes these infants are coming um, to light through TREC screening. When a TREC is abnormal, there is confirmatory tests that are necessary to evaluate the lymphopenia. Uh, these tests are expensive, but they are available to be ordered through primary care. So a T and B cell panel, I'm going to go back one more, sorry. This panel is nearly $700. Uh, but with an abnormal TREC, it is your next step. And also screening immunoglobulins. This is definitely a primary care test that can happen. It's less than $100 in most labs to do screening immunoglobulins. Uh, we want to make sure that these immunoglobulins are, are from the baby and not from placental or cord blood. Uh, 
from the baby uh, with an abnormal TREC. You can look at IgG, serum IgA, IgM, and IgE for less than $100. Uh, IgG is the most abundant antibody. Uh, it's the one that has um, the memory in the system uh, that will keep us, uh, mothers give it to their babies in the first trimester. We all, we all talk about that. Uh, and can be measured in a newborn and should be uh, present. IgA is found in the mucous membranes. We don't measure it in the mucous membranes. We measure it in the blood. Uh, IgM is the first antibody to respond uh, to um, a new exposure, a new antigen. And then IgE, allergists are familiar with IgE, is it's the reactive antibody uh, that's found uh, with um, antigen stimulation. But there are pitfalls of immunoglobulin testing. And the biggest pitfall I want to talk about is reference ranges. So the immunoglobulin levels of a three-month-old or two-month-old are much different than that for an 18-month-old. Because babies are born with their mother's IgG passed in the last trimester. Uh, so if you have a premature infant who did not get that passage of immunoglobulins in the last trimester, their IgG level will be low. And there's been some studies on using immunoglobulin prophylactically in the, in the micropremies who, uh, who are, are at risk for infection. Uh, but just be aware that those reference ranges, depending on the labs you, you use, the, the clinical lab you use, may not be adjusted for age, and you need to pay attention to that. And then the pitfall is quantitative deficiency in an older child especially does not necessarily mean that they are qualitatively at risk, right? I'm going to say that again. Quantitative deficiency does not necessarily translate into a, a qualitative deficiency, and vice versa. In an older child, normal immunoglobulins don't necessarily rule out an antibody deficiency that's important. And so then we're left with the next step, which is when do we refer? Like, how do we know when enough is enough through your primary care um, clinic? You're answering every question <laughs> without knowing it that's coming through on the list here. That's so, how good I am. Yeah. So I see, see one of them. Um, should I always refer to a specialist or uh, here can, we a go. can a family practice physician order these tests? Yes. Do they require a prior authorization? Sometimes. And which tests are most affordable or less than a certain amount yeah. of money? So, so I think I kind of touched on all of that. So the TREC analysis does mandate the next step, which is lymphocyte, TB, and K-cell analysis. Um, primary care, whether it be family practice or, or pediatrics, can clearly order the first-tier testing, which is CBC with differential and the immunoglobulin testing. And if they have an abnormal TREC, ordering a TB and K lymphocyte panel is is definitely in the realm of primary care. But here's that slide that we're back to, which is when to refer to a specialist. So if there are abnormal laboratory results, they're going to need further explanation or treatment potentially. Uh, and so that would be a great time to refer to a specialist. When you have a patient with, say, selective IgA deficiency, they don't necessarily need to be referred to a specialist. We know the diagnosis is selective IgA deficiency, that implies that their IgA is absent, but that they have normal levels of IgG and IgM, so that means you did that first pass immunoglobulin testing. But maybe their conservative management isn't going well. So maybe you're seeing more infections in this person, um, their quality of life is not 
uh, good or they develop a, a subsequent autoimmune condition, they should be referred to a specialist for management. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Chong's going to talk about this a little bit later, but reproductive considerations when genetic counseling and genetic testing is needed, I, be I believe that is when a specialist could definitely add to your care. This, I love this. I love this. This take take notes. Put get your notes button on this one. Let's go back again. Interdisciplinary management of primary immunodeficiency is key. Because like I mentioned before, in 25% of cases, patients are already presenting with another diagnosis other than just their immunodeficiency. So primary care has to be centered to this. Allergy immunology, pulmonary for your recurrent infections, bronchiectasis patients, hematology for patients with cytopenias, gastroenterology for these IBD patients or celiac patients. Maybe you need an infectious disease provider to help you choose antibiotics or to, to navigate through culture data. Um, ENT doctors are in my back pocket, right? When do they need sinus surgery? When are you, when are you asking them to, to get rid of inflammation so that you can then keep them free from infection? Um, and then don't, don't ignore nutrition. Don't. It, the thing that's missing from this is the thing that's going to be in my, in my next and my final slide for my part which is the patient needs to be central in this. Your patient is driving the bus. Your families are driving the bus. And we need to implement a shared decision, decision approach. Shared decision-making seeks the patient's participation. It helps the patient explore the options. It doesn't dictate the options for the patient. It helps us to understand what are our patient's values, needs, and what's impactful to them. We can assume that infections are impactful, but it may not be the case. It may not be infections. In Alana's case, it was just fatigue that was her most impactful symptom. And if you ignore the patient, you are going to miss what's most important. So involving them in the center of the shared decision-making model is important. And then reach a decision with the patient and with their full participation, because that's how you're going to get adherence to a care plan. That's how you're going to be able to implement something that's meaningful for that patient and acceptable for you as the provider. And then the last step, and, and Dr. Paris and I have talked about this before, the last step of this is to evaluate the decisions that were made together on an ongoing basis. Because this shared decision-making in this care plan is something that is modifiable as the patient ages, as the disease changes, as new diagnoses come to light, um, as the patient reaches different life uh, uh, milestones like reproduction, marriage, college. So making sure that you always go back and evaluate the patient's de decisions and your care plan that's acceptable to you. Now it's really important in regards to management uh, and treatment. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because there's always an opportunity to revisit and make changes yeah. um, along the way. And that brings us to our next section, okay? And we have one question. Let's see, hey, I need this. Like, oh, do you need this? So, yes. Audience response question again. Which of the following immunoglobulin replacement therapies can be dosed in pediatric patients every three to four weeks? And we'll see how the audience does with this, because I know many people um, either here in person or virtually are not practicing immunologists. So is it IVIG? Subcutaneous IG, facilitated sub-QIG, 
intravenous immunoglobulin and facilitated sub-Q for E, I'm not sure, and I don't know what any of those treatments are. Um, we have a mix of IVIG and sub-Q, and then some people said facilitated sub-Q alone, and some people said IVIG alone. Okay, so the correct answer is both IVIG and sub-QIG can be used on a monthly basis. Um, subcutaneous products can typically be used either on a frequent basis, so daily push, um, weekly, or bi-weekly. So the only products that we can use on a monthly basis are classic intravenous immunoglobulin or a more recent development, which is facilitated subcutaneous immunoglobulin. Okay. Okay. Let's go to the next section. All right, thank you. So I think just one second uh, um, as a specialist at uh, um, Children's Hospital that I want to go back and talk about is that we love referrals. Don't don't worry about that. You know that we don't want this referral. We want a lot of the referrals. Um, and I just want to just because I I don't know as a PCP if it's easy to order lymphocyte subsets and the way that it's ordered in the computer and every system, ours are named really silly. Um, it's really difficult sometimes to figure out exactly what to order. And I'd rather order the right one than to have to repeat it if it's the wrong one. That being said, um, also taking a phone call, you know, from a, from oh, a primary absolutely. care pediatrician who is trying to navigate an abnormal track is right. is what we want. Yes. Abnormal know? tracks, I think, should always be sent to um, immunology. But um, if you want to start some of the workup, that's fine. But they should, I think those always need to get sent to And the other thing immunology. I always say to referring providers and the residents and fellows is that it's a high impact, but admittedly a low yield evaluation. We evaluate many more people, even practicing immunologists. We do tests on many more people than we actually make a diagnosis on. Um, and that's okay. It's such a high impact diagnosis once it's made that we're willing to evaluate more yeah. people um, I think I always think a lot about, of other diseases. I think about cystic fibrosis in that in that analogy. Yeah. Pulmonologists evaluate yeah. for cystic fibrosis on a daily basis. Yep. Uh, and the cystic fibrosis diagnosis is impactful when they diagnose it young. And yep. so I think about it sort of in that sort of diagnostic model. Yep. And also just trust your gut because there are some um, diseases where you'll have normal immunoglobulins. You might even have normal subsets. My ALPS patient that came to me had normal immunoglobulins and normal subsets, but the doctor just felt that there was something weird about the big lymph nodes and the big spleen, and that's how they ultimately got the diagnosis. So even if the labs don't reflect what you believe, trust your gut, and if you still think something's not right, send that patient on. We're happy to see them. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about treatments for these patients, right? Because what's the point of diagnosing if we don't have effective treatments? So I'm going to talk to you about my patient, RS, and I met him. He was already 17 years old by the time I met him, and he's had lifelong history of pneumonias. Um, and in the first few years of life, they were just kind of normal ear infections, right? No one's really sure, is this more than normal, not normal? But at six years old, he was admitted to the ICU. He had a life-threatening pneumonia. He had an empyema. He required a thoracoscopic decortication and pericardial window during this admission. That's not words I say all the time as an immunologist, so he was a very sick child. Um, and then when he came in just routinely for another um, scope after this pneumonia, 
they were unable to extubate him. He had so much purulent um, fluid all throughout his lungs and his trachea. He ended up being ventilated just from this and had a chest x-ray that was consistent with pneumonia. And he grew strep pneumo peripherally as well as from BAL. So that's also um, a bit unusual. And he continued to have significant pneumonias. He had bronchiectasis. Um, and he also, um, at this time, really was seen by Palm, and they said, you know, there's something not right about this. Sent him to immunology, and at that time, he had very low IgG, very low IgA, but he had an elevated IgM, and that really is odd, right? So that speaks to a little bit of dysregulation that we've talked about before. And he had extremely low lymphocytes with CD4 counts under 200, and he ended up starting on IVIG as well as uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole um, for PJP prophylaxis just due to his really low T-cell count. And so that leads me to talking about these therapies that we use for primary immunodeficiency. Um, we have, IVIG is just one form of immunoglobulin replacement therapy, and this is really a mainstay of treatment for a lot of immune deficiencies, especially considering over half of all immune deficiencies are antibody defects, right? So uh, most patients with, um, in, with uh, PI are going to end up probably on some sort of immunoglobulin replacement. But we do have other therapies as well, and, and I'm not really going to talk about hematopoietic stem cell transplant today. I could talk for an hour about just that alone, um, but it's a curative option, right? So that's wonderful. And what I will touch on a little bit today is an exciting new treatment, gene therapy, which is part of uh, precision medicine um, and the uh, benefits of gene therapy, which is also curative, just like transplant, but has some benefits um, when you compare it to transplant. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about enzyme replacement therapy just because it's cool. It's kind of an immune deficiency. It's applicable to only one disease, ADA SCED, um, but it's, uh, it's an interesting form of therapy. Um, and then the mainstays that we do a lot, um, antimicrobial prophylaxis. We talk a lot about strategic vaccination and certain immune deficiencies. You know, someone with a complement defect or I treat them like they have asplenia and they're going to get a lot more vaccines. Um, and then we talk about um, what uh, Kristen also talked about with immunomodulators because there's a lot of autoimmunity. And so you're, you're going to need immunomodulators, rituximab steroids to, to treat some of those um, that you see. So we have one question here from the audience, and it ties into the the, uh, the previous slide. So, what can you talk a little bit, maybe more specifics about the role of prophylaxis with antibiotics in um, uh, antibody deficient primary immunodeficiency? Yeah, and there's there's no good set rule, wouldn't you say? I think this is very patient specific, um, provider specific. Um, but there's, so for instance, there's data that shows that immunoglobulin replacement um, is very effective at preventing life-threatening pneumonia. It's really good at that. But sometimes it's not the best at preventing sinus infections. And so some of these patients will continue to get sinus infections. And some of those patients, I do think about antimicrobial prophylaxis. There's other occasions where someone doesn't exactly fit CVID, their IgG is just a little low. I don't want to commit them to what's potentially a lifetime of immunoglobulin replacement. They're very young, um, but they're already getting seven courses of antibiotics each year from the PCP. And that patient, I'll say, you know, maybe 
we can have a chat. And why don't we, this fall and winter, you're, this is a young child. Why don't we just start with antimicrobial prophylaxis and see if that, that's effective? And we'll continue to follow the immune workup and, and see if this progresses or gets better. Um, and in some case, cases, I do it for a year. Everybody's happy. There's no more antibiotics. And the patient's immunoglobulin levels come up all on their own, right? So. Or maybe while you're doing specific vaccine challenges, um, initiating an antibiotic prophylaxis until you feel confident that you were able to elicit a pneumococcal response, right? So it's more right. like specifically, you know, strep pneumoprophylaxis while you're trying to get a, a decent pneumococcal serology. So we can talk about different ways to give immunoglobulin replacement, and we've really come a long way. When this was really first discovered that you can give people immunoglobulin, we were straight up injecting their thighs with it into the muscle. It was painful. It wasn't giving good levels. And then we realized, okay, we can give this through the IV. And so this is probably a way that most people know about giving immunoglobulin replacement is through IVIG. Um, but now we have other ways that you can give it, um, subcutaneous immunoglobulin, and more recently, the facilitated uh, immunoglobulin using hyaluronidase. And this is really through shared decision-making that we've talked about which one of these are you going to use for your patient, right? So IVIG, it's given just every three to four weeks, and you um, just have one needle. You schedule it, and it's given by a professional. Sometimes in your home, a professional comes, and you can go to the infusion center. Um, and I have some patients who really like that, or I have patients who say, you know, my child's home is is procedure-free, and my child, when they go to the hospital, they get a procedure, and I'm not going to do procedures at home, right? And so they prefer it that way. Um, but IVIG there's, has more systemic side effects. Um, so there's other patients who want subcutaneous immunoglobulin. It's flexible. You can do it at home. You can do it on your own schedule. Um, it does involve anywhere from one to sometimes you could do a max of six needles. I've never had a patient choose to do six needles, but you could. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot less systemic side effect. And I think what's really cool about the facilitated is that it kind of combines the best of both worlds in that you still can only give it every three to four weeks. You use one needle. Um, but you can also give it at home and there's fewer systemic side effects. So, um, and hot off the press, apparently it used to be only 17 and up. So it, I wasn't using it as much as I could since I'm mostly pediatrics, but now it's what, two and up? approved for pediatric use. Approved for pediatric use. So um, that's really exciting. So really, which one of these you pick? It's, it's shared decision-making. That's by far the most important. And I can't tell you how many times I have switched between therapy and therapy and therapy and therapy. Yeah, so just that because it's one of the questions that just, sorry, person that came through, which is, do patients need to fail IVIG prior to being started on sub-Q or facilitated it used to be that way, and I don't know if the, sub, the insert still says that, but I've had a skid patient that I literally never, never once in that baby's life have they gotten IVIG. I started them immediately on sub-Q immunoglobulin. It does take longer to build up to therapeutic levels to sub-Q. So if I, if I have a patient, we just had a three-year-old who came in with an IgG of zero. That patient went straight to get IVIG the next day because I know sub-Q is going to take me a little bit longer to build them up to therapeutic dosing. Um, but no, technically, do you really have to go to, do you have to do IVIG first? No. Um, before you do sub-Q, I, I've, I've gone straight to sub-Q. And a lot of the history of these three different immunoglobulin options um, have evolved in, through insurance company payments and, and 
and acceptance and formulary stuff uh, because of the work of immunologists who who flex on it, right? Like, y- y- there is no one-stop therapy for each patient, and we want this whole um, ray of options for patients. Um, so I have a slide on enzyme replacement therapy, uh, which can be used in one immune deficiency called ADA-SCID. An ADA-SCID is a deficiency of adenosine deaminase. And so when you don't have this enzyme, you build up DNA byproducts that can, are toxic, and you don't clear them out of your system. So this basically kills rapidly dividing cells, which are your immune cells. Um, but it can cause other issues. So these patients can go on to have deafness, developmental delay. They have odd bony problems as well. Um, and so in 1986, this Dr. Hirschfield um, was like, oh, why don't I give them their enzyme back from a cow intestine? And it worked, which is incredible. And so for years, we were using cows from New Zealand to give patients ADA skin. And that, you know, costs $400,000 a year, as one would expect if you use cows from New Zealand, um, until we now have an FDA-approved recombinant enzyme um, that... Uh, I have switched my patients on because the old um, the old product actually is no longer available. And through modern-day technology, the same dose of the enzyme is much more potent um, with a significant decrease in toxin metabolites, significant elevations in lymphocyte subsets. So it's, this, this therapy is amazing. It is still considered a bridge to more curative therapy, but this option is there. And I had a patient recently on this for, for three years for, until they were able to get a transplant. And then gene therapy, I think, is just a hot topic all across the board, not just in immune deficiency. But, but I would like to say we have a special place for gene therapy because the first gene therapy for human disease was for ADA skid. Um, that's if you just don't talk about the time that it was once injected straight into bone marrow for another disease. But the way we think of gene therapy now, first used for skid. Um, and now there's many other diseases that we are studying gene therapy for. Um, to, to basically provide a curative option. And one wonderful thing about gene therapy to tie back to the previous talk is that when you have, uh, when you need a transplant, you are, if you have a match, right? So if you have a perfect sibling match, wonderful. But if you don't, then you have to go to the, to basically a bone marrow bank and, or stem cell bank and hope that you have a match. And unfortunately, in this country, if you're white, you're probably going to get a match or several matches. And if you're not white, the likelihood of you getting a perfect match is much lower. And that is, that's a disparity. And the idea that gene therapy, you can use your own cells. You don't need a match, right? That, that eventually can really level that, that playing field. And I think, I find that just so exciting. So this is just a, a slide about the gene therapies that were used for XGIN. And I think sometimes people hear about this and they get nervous. Um, be, and, and there's reason to be because the early initial gene therapy trials that were done in Europe used a gamma retroviral vector that, and there were six patients where the, um, the gene inserted near an oncogene and there were six cases of leukemia. Um, although that was an FDA approved products from Vellus, I think for, um, ADA skid, it's now halted. But I will tell you that newer therapies for gene therapy now with, uh, when they use the same gamma retrovirus, um, retroviral vectors, they're using self-inactivating so that it can't turn on nearby genes, so reducing that potential for oncogenesis. But also now we've actually mostly switched to lentiviral vector, which seems to be a lot safer. 
um, and there's multiple studies doing that um, currently. Yeah, what's really interesting about that is the patients who did develop leukemia, though, and one of those was actually at our center, oh, were no. treated for their malignancy, kept their um, yeah. their curative gene therapy, mm. and were also cured of their cancer. So really, oh good, that's good to hear. Um, and I think a new development, too, a newer development, is that you can cryopreserve these cells now. So you can actually give, so there's not like this rush anymore, right? So you can give a little bit of conditioning. Um, here you, you see busulfan. So you're just basically creating space. You're getting rid of their cells that are defective, creating just the right pocket so that these uh, new cells can come in and um, and basically uh, create a whole new line where the uh, the gene defect has been cured. Um, and so there's a lot of research going on with this, and it is really, really exciting. So let's go back to, to my patient, right? He's on IVIG. Is, is he all better? Is everything wonderful? So no, you know, he's still having some issues. What's going on? So he, he had some normalization of his T cell function, but now his IgM is 574. That's really high. Um, he had some normalization of his complement studies, um, but he still has defects in other complement studies. He's also getting some other things that are just maybe not infectious, right? So he's getting periorbital edema that all the infectious workup does shows nothing. No organisms are found, and it's happening year after year. Um, he's also, um, oh, I don't know if it's this slide. No, it's the next slide. So he's also um, showing chronic sinus disease, even on immunoglobulin replacement. He's getting multiple sinus surgeries. And now he's getting uh, lymphadenopathy that he was admitted for, and um, all the infectious studies did not show that it was infectious at all. He is getting a lot more scarring in his lungs. Bronchiectasis is progressing. Um, and he's also getting a big liver and a big spleen. And he's starting to show some inflammation in his bowels, right? So these are things that IVAG at this time wasn't fixing. So... What, why is he different than CBID? One of the other docs called him, before I met him, called him hyper-IgM, right? But that, that can't, doesn't sound right because he makes IgA and IgM, right? So what's, what's different about him if anyone wants to jump in and, and I think the lipoproliferation is what comes up first yes. in my mind, right? Exactly. Where, where's his spleen coming from? I mean, I, a lot of CBID patients do get splenomegaly, but not necessarily with peripheral lymphadenopathy. Mm -hmm. We've got other organ systems involved that mm -hmm. we don't always see. Mm -hmm. We've got the classic antibody, pure yeah. antibody deficiency. I would guess if you imaged his gut, he probably had mesenteric lymphadenopathy mm -hmm. as well, and mm -hmm. maybe intestinal lymphadenopathy. It's probably not just related to infection and reaction. Yep, he he actually did. And so this is a patient that genetic testing is warranted, right? He's not your classic CVID. Something else is going on. And so we sent, actually, for him, we sent for whole exome sequencing. Um, and uh, look at him. He's excited for this answer. Um, and he ended up having a mutation in PI3 kinase P110 delta gene. And this, this is a newly described disease. I think we didn't really know about it until 2013. So when he presented at the age of six, this was not even a thing. If they had done genetic testing at that time, it would not have diagnosed him because we didn't know about it. Um, and so this is now called activated PA3 kinase delta syndrome. And so through this overactivation of PA3 kinase, you actually have T cells. You make them, and then they become overactivated, and then they kind of 
become oh anergic, right? They just don't, they, they don't want to do anything anymore. Um, so he entered into a clinical trial, and there is a small molecule inhibitor of the exact problem that he has. There's a molecule inhibitor of PA3 kinase delta. And on this, he just took a pill twice a day. His spleen shrunk. He had no recurrence of his uh, periorbital swelling. His lymphadenopathy resolved. He was able to actually stop his immunoglobulin replacement therapy. He stopped it on his own. Very bad. But he didn't <laughs> need to restart it. I didn't stop that, by the way. Um, and his cough resolved. Um, and he said for the first time in his life that he was walking around. And my favorite quote, he just said, he, I feel full of life. And that was just such a wonderful thing um, for me to hear. I love that you put on there that he was playing Pokemon Go. Yeah, it's he. A, it's a great. It's yeah, this is a just real live to, person. Oh, this. Yeah, you know? he talked to me for hours about Pokemon Go. I even downloaded it to my phone. So uh, I, I think it just re represents that this is this is a kid who was so severely impacted from a quality of life standpoint. Mm -hmm. He he really was, and just to be able to know that because of genetic testing, we were able to give him a very precise treatment um, is, is pretty incredible. And I I don't. Think I have time to go over all of these, but this is just a representation of diseases new and old that we now know the gene defect, and we have a biologic that can that can treat that condition specifically. That's that's not even a whole list. No, no, definitely this is just a partial list. Good. You go, Bob. Sure. Okay, so we're gonna go back and we're gonna revisit some of these questions that we did earlier. Um, and the first one is going to be, according to the Jeffrey Modell Foundation guidance, which of the following is a warning sign for PI in pediatric patients? Greater than four new ear infections, greater than two new ear infections, three weeks of antibiotics, one sinus infection within one year, or we're not sure. That looks like everyone got that right. So doing much better post-test. Four new ear infections in one year. Okay, next question. On average, how long does it take for PI to be properly diagnosed? 5, 10, 15, or 20 years? Or I'm not sure. Great. Okay, post-test much better. And then finally, next question. Which of the following immunoglobulin replacement therapies can be dosed in pediatric patients every three to four weeks? IVIG, sub-QIG, facilitated sub-QIG, or both intravenous and facilitated sub-QIG? Or I wasn't paying attention. Okay, so the answer, or correct answer, is intravenous and facilitated sub-QIG. Um, so we do have some time for questions. I interspersed some of the questions that came through um, into the appropriate sort of places during our presentations, but there's some really good ones. So let's see if I can get back um, to some of these. Does PI increase patients' risk for lymphoma? Um, and I think the answer to that is probably oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned about insertional oncogenesis, but in other PI diseases, it's actually a very different mechanism. Um, some diseases, like the one that you mentioned, predispose patients to lymphomas. Um, and we know that lymphoma occurs at a greater uh, rate in all comers with immunodeficiency diseases, probably because of that component of immune dysregulation, mm -hmm. right? It impacts T regulatory cells, et cetera. 
So yes, for sure, lymphoma, higher risk in patients with PI. And I think that's an important point for those in onc field that if you have a lymphoma in a child under three, that's really unusual. Um, and you should be thinking about partnering with your immunology folks. So I'm going to ask Kristen. There's one question here briefly, because that could be a very long answer, but we don't have much time. Could you explain the difference between sub-Q immunoglobulin and then the facilitated sub-Q immunoglobulin infusion? Yep. Just a sentence yep. or two for one and then Absolutely. the other. Absolutely. So um, immunoglobulin is donated antibody from the plasma pool. So subcutaneous immunoglobulin in the conventional form is a 20% concentration of antibody. The facilitated is a 10% concentration, so it's more volume, but the facilitated is actually pre-dosed with a subcutaneous dose of hyaluronidase, which is an enzyme that breaks up subcutaneous tissue to make a pocket for you to be able to deposit the immunoglobulin. So the active component is the same. It's donated antibody from the plasma pool. The volume is actually higher in the facilitated, but it's, it is given with hyaluronidase, which allows us to put larger volumes into basically a holding tank in our subcutaneous space so that we can put an entire monthly dose of, a, of, of antibody into the sub-Q space, and then it is, in a controlled fashion, absorbed through lymphatics into the blood system. So that's a great description of the difference between traditional sub-Q and facilitated. And the differentiator there is probably the ability to do it on a monthly basis mm -hmm. as opposed to either a weekly or typically bi-weekly basis. So it decreases the frequency of infusions and allows for you to use fewer needle sites, mm -hmm. which is probably very important in the pediatric yeah, population. You can get up to 600 mLs into one site with hyaluronidase, yeah. That's great. Um, when would you use hepatic uh, hemopoietic stem cell transplant, and is it ever a first-line therapy? For SCID, it is definitely right now a first-line therapy. I will say the most recent gene trial um, that Dr. Cohn did uh, for ADA SCID uh, makes us really question whether it should be first-line therapy because it was um, so much safer. There was so much less graft-versus-host disease, and it was just as efficacious as um, bone marrow transplant. But for SCID, you are thinking that those patients will definitely go on to have uh, stem cell transplant the way we are now. And there's many others where historically we used to not think of transplant, and now I would say a lot of immunologists would sell you um, that you're going to want to move to transplant pretty quickly. So for, for instance, like IPAX is one that um, if I know this patient really just has no FOXP3 cells, um, I'm going to probably want to move them to transplant sooner than, than later. And um, as, our, as our technology in hematopoietic stem cell transplant um, improves, you know, conditioning is more targeted, the outcomes have improved, so it becomes a little bit safer to consider that as first-line therapy. Mm -hmm. And there's some diseases that I wait, right? So it's not always, um, so for CTLA-4, if they're doing well and there's a beta step now, um, then I start them on a beta sept and see if they have significant burden of disease, um, then, you, then we usually do think about transplant. But there's, this is not cut and, try, cut and dry right now, and there's still a lot of discussion about which, which um, conditions you move to transplant sooner. So there's one question here. If you have a child with 
properly diagnosed illnesses like the flu, COVID, and RSV, but they're under the age of one, would you still, and in daycare, would you still consider starting the workup for primary immunodeficiency? So this is going to sound like Depends. a typical child yeah, who's sick a lot with the common respiratory viruses. Is it warranted to do that evaluation? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comment first because I did the economics of this, right? So the cost of doing a CBC with differential and first-pass quantitative antibody studies is cheap. It's cheap. And so, yes, I would. Um, but this is, you know, you're a pedi- you, know you're, you have a primary care pediatrics practice and this child stands out to you. Why would you not screen? I would say if, if you thought about it, you probably should mm-hmm. do it because Agreed. it's a burning question in your mind. Agreed. Right? Um, yeah. And I, I think it's it's easy. It's cheap. I think that um, it, it it's really de- very, very case-by-case case dependent. Mm-hmm. It depends on if there's some other family history sometimes or mm-hmm. if there's something with the kid's growth or how, if even if it's normal infections, are they very, very prolonged? Is it... I always rule out asthma first. I can't tell you how many times people come with recurrent pneumonias and they wheeze with every single one and they are cured with Flovin. I cure their primary immune deficiency. <laughs> um, so um, it really depends on, on the circumstances. Okay. So many questions. Um, in your practice, do you have any inheritance patterns that you feel are most frequent in immunodeficiency? We mentioned X-linked disease as one of the more common causes, but I think overall, I would say autosomal recessive diseases are, you know, seen, especially the more severe ones, right? The kind of the more severe immune deficiencies if we seem would have, to be also. If more we recessive. would have heard the whole of Alana's interview today, which we don't have time for, uh, we would have heard that um, after Alana was formally diagnosed with her hypogammaglobulinemia, her mother was diagnosed with common variable immunodeficiency syndrome. So that is a pattern that I see very frequently. Or what I'll get is I'll have a child who comes with selective IgA deficiency, and the, and the parents will be like, this comes from his, her father, right? You screen the dad, and he has either selective IgA deficiency or CVID even. So we, we know about these families who have the, the CVID, selective IgA deficiency commonality. Um, and so I would say... Any family history is never off the table with PI. Yeah, and there's so many now, though, that there's in the same gene, you can have a STAT3 mutation that causes a gain of function, and you can have a STAT3 mutation that causes a dominant negative. We call that now hyper-IG syndrome. You can have the same gene and have completely wildly different presentations depending on where the, the mutation is located. Some of these more gain-of-function, haploinsufficiencies, these newer ones that we're finding through genetic testing, actually are inherited more in an autosomal dominant fashion, but because they're, um, the, they are highly variable in, in its expression in, in, in phenotype in patients. I've had a patient who had aplastic anemia um, at the age of 18. Her hemoglobin, when she came, was 3. <laughs> and her mother had the exact same mutation and had nothing. Nothing. She so highly variable phenotype. Highly variable phenotype with the exact same mutation. So we're yeah. seeing a lot of these autosomal dominant inheritance patterns um, that were just previously not recognized before. So we're almost out of time. We are not going to be able to get to all of the questions that I have here. Um, but before we wrap, 
I want to go over just a few SMART goals that we can maybe take away from today's presentation. Um, and SMART goals stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. So we hope that everyone will consider PI and pediatric patients with frequent, severe, and or unusual infections. Follow or use some of Kristen's um, information to get to those diagnostic pathways to confirm a diagnosis or maybe start the evaluation to get to the diagnosis um, of PI. Initiate or refer, really liberally, pediatric patients with PI for diagnosis and treatment with immunoglobulin therapy, maybe hematopoietic stem cell transplant, maybe enzyme therapy, whatever is necessary to treat the individual patient with these diseases. Stay abreast of all these new and emerging precision medicine strategies with some of those biologic medications. And then provide patient-centered care that includes shared decision-making and considers all of those social determinants of health that we talked, to, talked about. A reminder that to receive CME credit today, please complete the post-test and the evaluation. And also a reminder to visit the CMEO Rare Diseases Hub for programs, information, and tools for both patients and clinicians. Um, and with that, I will wrap up the presentation and thank uh, my co-presenters, Kristen Epland and Dr. Hei Chong. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed this morning's presentation and have a great day at the meeting. Thank you.